Welcome back to Exploring Jewish Thought with Afroni Schlesinger. This is a re-recording of the three primary approaches to why God created the world in accordance with the Maharal, the Ramchal, and Rav Kook. The reason why I, did, I redid this podcast is because I felt that my first one, A, got a bit off topic, which was unnecessary, and B, didn't, primarily didn't do the Maharal's position justice, both in terms of the, the nuance in his approach, the complexity of his approach, and the expanse, all the different areas of the question that he touches upon. So I wanted to go back over it. For those who may have already heard this, I, I recommend listening again, but I, of course the conclusions will remain the same. So let's start with the Ramchal. Right? The Ramchal discusses God as, this, as, as the ultimate good. God as good, as a qualitative good. And he discusses this in his Sefer Dat Tvunot, for those who would like to look it up inside. It's in the very beginning. I believe it's the 15th to the 17th uh, Seif, section in the very beginning. Dat Tvunot is a very interesting uh, concept as a book because it's essentially a, a conversation that goes on between the seichel and the neshama, right? So the, the the wisdom, as it were, and the soul. It's a conversation, a back and forth, and a dialogue that they have. So essentially, what comes out of that dialogue as it pertains to our question of why God created the world, it's essentially that God is an ultimate good, and God as the ultimate good. By, by nature, he wants to do good. He doesn't have to do good, but he, he wants to do good because he is good. That is the quality of good to want to do good to others. And given that, he created a world and creations in the world to be recipients of that good as a way of fulfilling his, his desire, his own to benefit others. Now, there are a few side points we need to address, given that approach, right? The first of which is going to be, it, does that mean that God is lacking something? The second of which is going to be, how exactly does, does that work? And lastly, what does that mean for us? So does that mean that God is lacking something, that he needed to create a, a recipient for his good? And the answer is no, right? The, the Ramachal goes at length to explain that it's not that God is lacking something or by not having a recipient of his good, he is any less good. There is no deficiency in his good. He simply wants to do good. The deficiency is in reality. The deficiency is in the reality that there lacks a recipient for God's goodness and therefore, <clears throat> and therefore there is a, there is a, there is a deficiency in, in, in the reality. God created something in order to perform something that he would like to do, in order to fulfill his will, his desire, his rutzon. Again, desire is a difficult word to ascribe to God, but God does have a will of some sort, and he created a reality whereby he could execute that will. That doesn't mean that he is lacking something. That meant that reality was lacking something, namely the ability to provide a recipient of good for God who wanted to do good, and so God changed that. But that doesn't reflect on any sort of deficiency within God itself. That's point number one. Point number two is how exactly this works, because for the average person, 
living life who has been exposed to suffering either by first or second hand, you know, it could be a, a witness or, you know, a personal experience that has been the recipient of bad or suffering, you may question the notion that the entire purpose of existence and the purpose of the world is to be recipients of God's good. Right? If I were to tell you, if I were to tell you, picture a world that was created entirely for the purpose of, of giving God a platform to execute his good and just to provide the world with, with endless benefit, I'd venture to say that you would fathom a different reality than the one that you currently live in. You see atrocities going on around you, you see injustices going on around you, you see suffering, you see mourning, and you wonder how exactly this can be reconciled with this view that the Ramchal has of the world. And it's not as though we're in a worse existence or reality than the Ramchal lived in, that he was just blind to atrocity. If anything, the opposite would be true. So how exactly do we understand this concept? So the Ramchal explains that the trick, not the trick, but the the catch in creating a world to be the recipient of goodness is that free goodness is 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 deficient. Right? It's damaged. It's 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 incomplete. Free goodness will never be the same as earned goodness. Being a deserving recipient of blessing, of good, is just qualitatively better goodness than being an undeserving recipient of good. I was listening very recently to a a podcast with Dr. Jordan Peterson, and he was discussing this exact concept. And this was really just a few days after I'd covered this piece in the Ramchal, so it, it immediately resonated, and I was really blown away by the, the research that backs this, this idea, he was speaking with a, a former, uh, very high-ranking army general, and General Dorsey, maybe? I don't remember the exact, word, the exact name. He was speaking with, a, with a, a former high-ranking army official who had a vision for America having some sort of national service program, similar to how in Israel you either have army service or, or some sort of natu- uh, national service, that you have a one-year national service, and he was depicting the, the, or really explaining the good that he thought that would do for the population, for their experience, for their, their common mission and personal growth, and and sense of obligation toward the community. And he was listening to one of the Democratic candidates who's currently, you know, running for president, speaking about a, an idea for, you know, universal free college at, you know, certain uh, institutions, perhaps state institutions. And he said, you know, he loved the idea, but on the condition that it is earned after a year of, of national service, and that's not to say that that's not to say that he would that this is that we need it because it makes it financially viable, or because or because he just doesn't want to make it too easy for people to just have free schooling and free education. Rather, he believed that the seriousness with which they took university and their studies, if they earned it, was was significantly higher 
than if they felt that they were getting a handout. And Dr. Jordan Peterson, who is a, a renowned you know, psychologist and sociologist, went at length to explain the, the backing for that t- sort of mentality, this, this, this sense of, of you know, stolen benefit, as it were, will always be accompanied with a, with a certain degree of, of embarrassment or, or undeservedness, that you've got handouts will never feel as good as, as the product of your labor and of, and of your commitment. And so to really benefit someone, you can't just give them things for free. You need to give them things in, in, in reward or in response to the hard work that they put in. And that's how, you, that's how ultimately they'll come to appreciate what they have as opposed to being embarrassed by what they have and how they got it. And they'll never be able to isolate what they got for free from the, from the, the way that they got this, which was something that they, they aren't proud of. So I thought that was a very, very interesting idea, and I thought it played in perfectly with this Ramchal, that yes, you know, God could create a world and do nothing but good for it, give it nothing but good and, and blessing, but as human beings, we would perpetually exist feeling guilty about everything that we have, having not done anything to deserve it. So we have a world where no blessing is guaranteed and no good is is really comes for free for that matter. It's always a result of somebody's hard work. And when you have a world that exists, so then the, the natural product of that is a world where where it could be devoid of blessing, granted that you're not working hard enough. Now, that seem they may sound like an oversimplification. You you know, I you probably know plenty of people who work very hard and are not getting all the blessings in the world because the moment you have a world that exists where goodness and blessing is a result of hard work, then you can be a subject of the suffering that comes along with lack of hard work. And that could be someone else's lack of hard work that is making you suffer. That's a possibility in the world that we live in. But ultimately, blessing and goodness is going to come as a result of deserving blessing and deserving goodness. So what does that mean for us? What that means for us is we were given instructions, very, very elaborate instructions for doing what God believes is necessary to deserve his goodness and his blessing. And that may not take the form that we hope, right? Maybe in our minds, goodness is, well, I'm just going to be very wealthy. I need all the financial blessing, right? And and if I follow all the mitzvot, but I, I don't have the 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 finances that I need, then either I'm doing something wrong or the system is broken or, or untruthful. But the, the form that that blessing, that goodness is going to take is also a question that, that needs looking into. And perhaps we're making ill-advised assumptions as to what God's goodness looks like. I mean, if you have the right people in your life, you have people who love you and care about you, but you have you know, uh, you know a plethora of other other problems that that you're dealing with, so you may not see your life as as or you may not see what you're getting as as being a recipient of God's goodness, but you may just be missing what goodness really looks like, the form that it takes. It may not take physical form. It may take many different forms for that matter that that we're failing to appreciate. But what that means for us as 
as a, a nation aspiring towards deserving God's goodness is to follow the instructions laid out in order to be the recipients of that goodness. But there are really two approaches to, to view it, as I spoke about in, in, in the last podcast, right? You could see it as, well, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to keep the commandments and I'm going to follow God's instructions so that I can be a, a, a recipient of God's blessing and God's goodness. Alternatively, you could look at it as, well, if God having a recipient for his goodness is so important that he created the world just to accomplish it, I mean, if it's so powerful, so necessary for God to have a recipient of his goodness, well, then I'm going to follow the commandments and I'm going to, I'm going to deserve that goodness, not because I would like to be a recipient of that goodness or not primarily because I would like to be a recipient of that goodness, but because that's why God created the world. And I want there to be recipients of God's blessing and God's goodness because God wants there to be a recipient of his goodness. And if, if it was important enough for God that he created the world to accomplish it, then it's important enough for me to affect that, that reality. So it could be an entire self, entirely selfless act you identify or, 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 or recognize what God sees as valuable, namely a reality that receives his benefit. And therefore you work to, to reform reality to be the recipient of that benefit, not necessarily to enjoy the direct product of that benefit, but rather because you believe that if it was important enough for God to create the world, then it's certainly a worthy use of your time and perhaps the only worthy use of your time if it's the reason that you were created. The Ramchal elsewhere discusses a secondary reason for the creation of the world, but it's, it's difficult to call it a reason because it's secondary. It's, it's kind of an after the fact, which is the opportunity for, for people to rejoice or de derive some sort of deep spiritual enjoyment through connecting to God. Now we'll see by the Maharal's perspective why I think that this is a secondary reason for the Ramchal, that the secondary reason is the benefit and the enjoyment that we get out of it, whether in this world or the next. And the primary reason is God having a recipient for the good that it is natural for the ultimate good to want to bestow upon other people. So that is, that's the Ramchal's perspective in a nutshell. Now I'd like to get into the Maharal's, which is going to be a bit of a more elaborate approach. And we're going to walk through a number of steps. He really addresses it in his fourth section of the book Be'er HaGolah. He addresses it at length, almost in, a, in a, a roundabout method while speaking about the mitzvah of tefillin. And so we're going to get into both the specifics as they pertain to tefillin, as well as the larger ideas the Maharal extracts from them in order to answer our question. But what we'll see at the end is that he may be answering a slightly different question than everyone else is. So he starts with the following premise, and that is everything in this world serves a function of glorifying God as the being that created them. By 
your mere existence as a being created by God, you reflect upon God and your existence as great as it is. Now, that's not to suggest that, you know, it's not to suggest that every person, you know, is worthy of the title a great person, but your mere existence is great because it's, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, the worst person in the world is among the greatest things ever created just by dint of the complications that go into you know the complexity that goes into what it means that they're here and what they're and what they can do and and the the power they have to to impact others their their cognitive capability their their, their physical capacity that they, they they are a remarkable creation regardless of what they're choosing to do with their talents and so every creation is just by def- definition a a glorification of the creator and the maharal doesn't pull this you know from nowhere, he doesn't just—he didn't just close his eyes one day and decide this is that this is what creations do or the functions that they serve. Right? We see this in appearing across, you know, across different uh, sources, such as you know <clears throat> the one of the the blessings that was instituted to say in weddings, shakol baralichvodo. Right? What does that mean? That everything was created for his glorification. Now, again, I, I don't want to get stumped on this. I don't want to, to get held up by this point because we addressed it in the previous podcast how exactly to relate to the idea that God created things to glorify himself. So let's take things out of, out of human terms and you know what that would mean if a human did that as opposed to what that means if God did that because they're really incomparable. But... but so that's 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 the premise that the that the Maharal maintains, and we see we saw a similar premise, saw a similar idea mentioned in in Pirkei Avot that things were created for the glory of God, and things are themselves the glory of God. Now there are really two levels upon which creations can glorify their creator, right? Two two different levels, very qualitatively different. One is as a product of the creator's actions, and one is as a result. Right, the difference between product and result is in their, in in how direct they are, how how linked they are to the creator, how closely linked. The product is is a more direct and immediately linked to God, while the result is more distantly associated and therefore slightly more loosely reflecting of God. Right, and when when you think about it, just to try to put that into relatable terms, what the difference might be between a product or a result of the creator think about you know big figures who have started movements if you you know consider the biggest four figures perhaps in the last uh, century plus of in 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 orthodox thought you have the Rebbe Milubavitch you have Rav Soloveitchik Rav Kook and the Chazanish the Rebbe Milubavitch you know as the as the figurehead of the Chabad movement and Rav Soloveitchik probably is the figurehead of modern orthodoxy, perhaps. Uh, Rav Kook is the figurehead for religious Zionism, or Dati Leumi. And the Chazanish as the more modern figurehead of the Haredi movement. <clears throat> Again, not the founder of the Haredi movement, but certainly a more modern figurehead as he, as you know, his establishment of the current Haredi movement in the land of Israel was... He was probably the most influential figure uh, since probably the Khatam Sofer in the general um, Haredi movement, I would say. But so how we see, let's say, 
a, a follower of their movement is very different perhaps than, and, 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 and how their actions reflect the ideology of the founder is different than how we may see the student of, of such a movement or, or of such a teacher. So, for example, how Rav Aaron Lichtenstein and Rav Shechter perhaps reflect Rav Soloveitchik is very different than how perhaps a modern Orthodox Jew today reflects Rav Soloveitchik, where the, the, the greatness of his students really come as a direct product of having, of, of, of having grown up at the footsteps of a giant and trying to embody his vision and maintain it and advance it through the next generation. And that we can see through Rav Schechter and Rav Lichtenstein. But perhaps we, 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 a, a, an average member of, of, of the modern Orthodox movement, you know, a few decades after Rav Soloveitchik's passing, may not reflect Rav Soloveitchik as well as the students who were raised at his footsteps. And that perhaps is the difference between being a, a product of something as opposed to a result of something. And so these are the two levels where if you're a product of God, then you, your behavior very, very directly reflects and therefore glorifies God's existence. Whereas if you're a result, it's, it's a little bit more removed in the glorification of God's existence. Now the Maharal draws this this differentiation between between basically Israel and the rest of the world. And his approach is a bit abstract. It was a little bit hard to wrap my mind around the exact idea that he was trying to convey. So I would highly suggest looking inside and seeing if you have a different understanding than my own. But he believed kind of in, in, in a metaphysical sense that that Israel is, in a sense, the product of God. He says, you know, Israel is called the firstborn of God, and it's called, as we mentioned in the last podcast, the Reshit Degancha, right? The, the very first produce. And in us being, in Israel being such a direct, a direct result of God, as a kind of a natural product of God, our behaviors are going to reflect and therefore greater, more glorify God's existence than the rest of the world, which was a, a less direct product of God's creation. Now, I've thought of perhaps a more practical explanation for this, but I'm not confident in the accuracy of the explanation. So I'll, I'll give the example either way. But I mean, if you think about it, the countless instructions, commandments, guidelines, values, principles that were given to Israel as absolutely necessary for following creates a reality where our actions will be a more natural reflection of the source of those guidelines because those guidelines are meant to impact every aspect of the way that Israel lives their lives. Whereas if you just have seven edicts that come from the same source, then your actions as you navigate those commandments 
are going to be much more free and much more your own and perhaps less of a reflection back on the source. Now, my skepticism with that, with that comparison and with that explanation is, first of all, I don't think the Maharal intended on the explanation being that practical. I think there is a, the, his ex- explanation is firmly rooted in, in the, the metaphysical reality, whatever it means, that, that Israel was the product of, of God, whereas, whereas the rest of the world was, was more of a result of his creation. I don't exactly know how to explain it any better than that, and I highly recommend that you look inside. And the second reason why I'm skeptical to that explanation is that it may be a reversal of the chicken and the egg, meaning uh, the assertion being that because Israel has so many more practical instructions, so then our actions will more closely reflect God and therefore glorify him more greatly. But that could be the opposite. It could be that Israel was only given so many more specific instructions because our actions more closely Im- reflect on God. So the, the, the fact that Israel's actions are reflecting God and glorifying God is the reality, in which case God needed to give them the necessary instructions to accomplish that, that goal and serve their, their very important function. Whereas if you're less closely associated with the glory of God or with the, with, if your actions are less closely, uh, re- less closely reflecting of God's glory, then it's not as necessary that you are so particular. So it, it could be a confusion of the chicken and the egg to suggest that, that the commandments which impact our behavior is a result or, 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 or is, the, is the cause of, of our existence being a reflection of God's glory. So that's just a little bit about the distinction. Now, to understand that entire premise, again, the premise being that the creations in the world reflect God's glory, to understand that premise a little bit deeper, we're going to look at the mitzvah of tefillin as the Maharal explores at in depth. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece that I highly recommend seeing inside because we're not going to get to all the specifics and how he breaks down the difference between the tefillin on the head and the tefillin on the arm and the difference between the, the, how the sections are written inside the tefillin. And we're not going to get into all the specifics but I will just mention a few points. Primarily, we need to understand this concept mentioned in Brachot, which is this idea that God wears tefillin. And more specifically, that the, that the sections written in God's tefillin are not like the sections written in our tefillin that God gave us. Rather, the sections written in God's tefillin is Mika Amcha Yisrael, who is like your nation Israel, Goyachad Ba'aretz one nation in the land. So to understand that, let's try to wrap our minds around what tefillin do and what they are. First of all, tefillin bear the name of God, not just because they have God's name written in it like many other things, but because they have the oneness of God, the uniqueness of God, you know, the, 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 the supremacy of God in them, in the Shema, and they also have the might, the strength, the, the power of God written in them, 
right, in the story of, of the Exodus from Egypt. So essentially what they are is a testament to God's glory, his greatness, that there is nothing else like God. It is, it is the kind of the, the profession of there is no one else like God. So what does it mean to wear such a symbol on your head or to be commanded to have such a symbol on your head? It's tantamount to to wearing perhaps a, a, a crown that directly reflects your relationship with the most highly respected and highly powerful king. If there's a figure who is of unprecedented power, a king, let's say, for example, of unprecedented power, of unprecedented respect, of unprecedented goodness, he has everyone's favor, he's really... Highly, highly, highly regarded. How much glory is that for you that you get to wear or, or that, you, that you're bestowed or, or that a symbol of this king was bestowed upon you by the king himself? And that's a tremendous glory. You walk around with that symbol. You're walking around with a direct link that the, the king wished to draw between you and himself. It's kind of reminiscent of the Purim story where, where Haman was asked by Ahasuerosh, you know, what is the very highest honor that I can bestow upon someone that, that I wish to, to honor? And he says, well, you take the king's horse and the king's crown and the king's clothing and you walk around the entire village saying, this is a man that the king wanted to honor. Now, you could say that why does he need the king's clothing and the king's horse and the king's crown? Because, well, those are the best ones. And so you just have to give them the best. But probably a more accurate understanding, and this also ex- explains why you need to say that this is a man the king wants to honor, is because the, the fact that it's the king's is what makes it the best. Not necessarily that it's the most expensive. If you had a more expensive crown, one, you know, just laying around the kingdom, that wouldn't necessarily be a greater honor to give him because it's an honor that's, that's disconnected from the king. If the king has honor, then wearing his crown gives you a sense of that honor. And therefore, that's what tefillin are. When you, when you don tefillin, you're essentially displaying that the great, the one, the superior God the all-powerful God wished that you would bear his name upon you, and that is glorifying for the one wearing tefillin. That is a tremendous, tremendous honor for you because it's a jewel that links you back to God, associates you with the honor of God, and that's the idea of the tefillin. It's an additional level of honor for those who wear it. And the Maharal goes at length to explain the difference. Well, first of all, the reason why it's placed on the head is because it's an addition. It's an addition to yourself. You are you, you have your honor, but the, but the additional honor, the Tosefet Kavod, as he calls it, is, is beyond you. It's one step beyond you. It doesn't come from you. It comes from somewhere external to you. This isn't necessarily coming this is, this is partially coming as 
it's attached to you in a sense. It's directly connected to you because it has to do with who you are that you were given this symbol, but it has to be on top of your head because the honor, the additional honor that you did deserve, but it didn't come from you. It's coming from something beyond you and therefore it's on top of you. Your height reaches only so far and this is just beyond that because it is coming. It is not coming from you. It's coming from beyond you that's being bestowed upon you. And that's also why the other place for the tefillin is the arm. Just like the head is the peak of the height of, of human beings, the arm is the peak of the depth of human beings. It's the, it's as far reaching as, as humans can be, the outstretched arm. And that is the idea of this additional glory that is being given bestowing upon bestowed upon Israel but not coming from Israel rather coming from a different source which is God and, and the glory that God has so says the maharal and this is how he answers the question of God how God of why God created the world he explains God wears tefillin essentially for the same concept first of all all creations are a glorification of God but the crown jewel is the tefillin that he wears, which bears the verse, Mika Amcha Yisrael, who is like your nation Israel. Why is that the crown jewel? Because just as Israel is glorified through their association with God by bearing God's name upon their head, God is glorified through his association with Israel by bearing Israel's name upon his own head. Now you have, that exists in, in on kind of multiple levels where you have the the Israel in theory, what Israel is supposed to be, and then the Israel in practice, both of them being a reflection of God's glory, but the 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 practic the 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 manifestation, the practical manifestation, the real manifestation is qualitatively different than the than the manifestation in theory, the intended the intended manifestation of that glory. And that is also the difference between, between the head and the arm, the head being the Israel in theory and the arm being the Israel in practice. So that existence is a glorification by association for God, where when Israel is triumphant or even just existent, that gives God glory by the, because he is called by our name or that he dons our name, the name of Israel, upon him. And I say that mere existence because our mere existence is beyond natural and everything about Israel's existence is beyond natural. When you look at our continued existence, our continued return to Israel after exceptionally long periods of, of exile, our continued survival in spite of oppression, our continued prosperity in spite of, of, of attack and hatred is really a remarkable and perhaps unprecedented historical feat. And therefore, our mere existence serves as a glorification to God. All existence serves as a glorification to God by mere extension of its complexity. But Israel has that unique 
ability to glorify God through their existence. And therefore God derives honor from Israel's existence. And that is why he wears the tefillin that says, because the idea of tefillin is honor. Just like when Moshe asked God, show me your honor. When we understand that to be saying, well, I want to see you, God. I want to see your face. But what does God actually show him? The back of his head, more specifically, the tefillin, the knot on God's tefillin, because that because the tefillin is God's honor. The two are very, very closely linked. So what exactly does that mean? First of all, how do we understand why this is not some sort of deficiency in God? And this is a very, very cool idea. And this is an idea that comes from what makes honor qualitatively different than any other thing that can be attributed to God. First, the Maharal addresses different ideas that he believes to not be particularly good explanations of why God created the world. The first being the assumption that God created the world for the benefit of his creations. Says this, this idea does not make very much sense because you don't need to create creations in order to benefit them. You're just creating the necessity for, for benefit. It can't be that God created creations to benefit them or, to, or, to, or for their enjoyment because they only require enjoyment or benefit because they exist. You're creating the necessity with the creation. You could have saved yourself the time and not done anything. So that's number one. Second of all, he says that it's not likely that the reason is so that he could display his greatness and his power and his might to his creations. It's not so clear what the Maharal's issue is, but he says that it's unlikely that God created the world so he could display his greatness to Basar Vedam, right, to flesh and blood. And Rabbi Hartman, who has an explanation of the, of the entire works of the Maharal, was very particular about the words the Maharal uses of flesh and blood. Meaning, why does he call them specifically flesh and blood here? To show that we're not exactly important enough to warrant creation just so we witness God's greatness. I mean, God has no desire that we should, that, that, that so much of a desire for us to bear witness to his greatness that it is worth creating us just so they're a witness to his fortitude. He says that's unlikely. Lastly, he addresses really the idea or a similar idea to what the Ramchal mentioned in that he says, and it's unlikely that, well, God is good and therefore he does good to others. And he brings the example of, you know, a, a builder builds so that he is called a builder. Right? A teacher teaches so that they are called a teacher. It's unlikely that God's creation of the world was out of his desire to be called a creator. It's not likely that he was... L- I'll say it like this. Right? I mean, we're a little bit confused today because perhaps you could say, well, no, a, a teacher isn't someone who teaches. A teacher is someone who has a teaching degree. 
You could say a builder isn't someone who builds. A builder is someone who has the technical know-how to build. But I don't think that's the best definition. Right? It, not everything that you have the technical know-how to do is a very good definition of you. I know how to play basketball. I, wouldn't, I, I don't think a basketball player is a very apt definition of, of myself. You know, if someone knows how to play guitar, that doesn't mean that doesn't necessarily make them a guitar player. Or if someone knows how to teach, that doesn't necessarily make them a teacher. Because we have such systematic standards and requirements for knowledge in specific areas and specific professions, so we will call people by a certain title based on their knowledge or aptitude as opposed to practically what they do, but perhaps a more accurate definition for people and who they are is by what they're actually doing, not necessarily the technical know-how that they have. So a builder builds so that they will be called a builder, and the Maharal feels that that's a a diminishment of God and his greatness and his goodness in particular to say that he does good so he's called good. God does not need to do good in order to be called good. It's not the same thing as a God is good regardless he doesn't need to do good in order to be called good. He thought that's a little bit, beli- it's, it's, it's belittling a bit to, to God's goodness to suggest that. Now, I think the Ramchal steers clear of that complaint to a certain degree, but the Maharal in general is not convinced that that is the reason for, for the existence of the world. He doesn't find it significant enough or necessary for God for that matter. But he does believe that God's glory, the glorification of God, is a significant enough reason for the creation of the world. And he says, and, and it's, he says that the glorification of God is qualitatively different than anything else we would attribute to God. Why? Well, the Maharal just disagreed with the fact that, that God would create the world to do good to them so that he would be called good because he doesn't need people to call him good. Right? Or that God would build so he could be called a builder, or he would create so he could be called a creator, or he would display strength so he can be called strong. God is good. He is strong. He is a creator. That's, that is who he is, independent of what he does. But honor is qualitatively different because honor comes from the beholder. And this is the idea that we spoke about earlier in that in that the honor of wearing the tefillin with God's name on it is not coming from us, it's coming from God. So to God's honor, which he derives from us, is not coming from God, it's coming from us. Honor is the only thing that comes from the thing that's honoring it. Meaning, God God being honored is not necessarily a reflection of the fact of his, his honorableness. God being honored is a reflection of those who honor them or him. And so you can, your, the degree to which you may be honored is expanded by the existence of things beyond yourself because honor comes from without and not from within in a certain sense, where to be honored, it comes from the other, the honorer as opposed to the honoree. Now, there is certain, there are certain people who are deserving of honor and undeserving of honor, but this is a quality which is created by, which is created as an external factor as opposed to an internal factor. Is God worthy of being honored? Certainly. Can you honor things that are not worthy of being honored? Yes, you, you may. 
So the existence of external things to you is what facilitates your honor in particular, and only the honor because that is the thing that is facilitated by the external as opposed to the internal, in which case this is not a deficiency in God. It is simply a reality that greater honor can be created by having things that exist outside of God. And that is the Maharal's perspective. says this is why other things exist. Now, I want to be very particular with the formulation and the language. I don't know that the Maharal answers the question of why God created the world. And I don't know that he believes that we know the answer to that question or that there is a necessary answer that there is an answer necessarily to that question, perhaps he wouldn't disagree so much with the Rambam that we mentioned in the previous podcast that, that we just, you just can't know. It's a waste of your time to even try. I think the Maharal answers the question, for what reason did God create the world? Which is not the question of why God created the world. Maybe we don't know, maybe we can't know, and we never will know. Maybe there's not a knowable or understandable reason but for what reason is different than why? The reason was for the glory of God. Why God wanted, needed would be an inappropriate word, but wanted, desired that glory, he doesn't get into. But glory is something produced by external existence. And so God created external existence for that glory. Why? What he hopes to accomplish, we don't know, and the Maharal doesn't address. But this is for what reason God created the world. The final approach I would like to address is that of Rav Kook. Now, Rav Kook essentially took the approach of Rashi that we saw, quoting the Midrash in Bereshit Rabbah in the first Pasuk of the Torah, and he elaborates on it much, much further. The two things called Reshit, Bereshit Baralukim. So on behalf of Reshit, God created the world. The two things called Reshit are Torah and Israel. Reshit Chachma and Reshit Degancha. But Rashi really stops there. Rav Kook takes it a little bit further. What does it mean that the world was created for the Torah? or that the world was created for Israel. So if you take the example of Israel, you can really understand it in two ways. Either that Israel is to some degree an accomplishment or the epitome of accomplishment in whatever God had in mind in creating the world, which is why Rav Cook actually just works very, very nicely with other perspectives. In general, Rav Cook comes in with an all-inclusive perspective as opposed to an exclusive perspective. That's generally his, his approach to everything. Well, all-inclusive of all legitimate ideas, in a sense. That, or at least the legitimate aspects of every idea might be a, a better way of formulating that. That if, let's say, you take, if, if you take the Maharal's approach of the world was created for the glorification of God and, and Israel has the highest ability to glorify God through their existence and through their behavior, then it was created on behalf of Israel, not because, you know, because we're so great or because we are supposed to be, or, or because this is, this is a gift for us, a reward for us, simply because 
Israel is the creation that can accomplish the reason for existence, and therefore the existence was created on behalf of Israel and the role that Israel is supposed to serve. Alternatively, it could be created for Israel because Israel has the most to benefit from the creation of the world since we since Israel has a Israel has more opportunities to use everything in this world in the service of God and the betterment of themselves and the accomplishment of their goal a divine goal of being a light unto the nations of bringing God into this world can be accomplished through proper use of the world that God created. And therefore, perhaps the world was created for Israel because in, a, in a, almost a very literal sense, everything in this world is needed in order, to, in order for Israel to accomplish their goal. In a sense, of the, when you consider that the, the Beit HaMikdash is called Ki Beiti Beit Tfilai Karele Kol HaAmim, that it's supposed to serve as a as a a home of of prayer for everyone for all nations across the world right then then everything that is necessary to create the beta migdash from the space that it occupies the materials that make it up is a they exist perhaps so that Israel can create such a structure in God's service the world was created for Israel, perhaps for Israel to accomplish their divinely ordained mission of serving God and bringing God into the world and, and displaying God to the rest of the world. Now, the other part of the, of the Midrash of Bishvil HaTorah is a very interesting one and a difficult one to, to explain or to put into words, but I'll do my best. The Torah, the Torah exists outside of this world and irrespective of this world. It exists because what the Torah is, and I'm not talking about the Chamishe Chumshe Torah, the five books of Moses as we know it, and I'm not talking about the Tanakh, and I'm not even talking about the Gemara or the combination of all these things. I'm talking about the underlying truths and principles that the Torah is based on. Right? The Torah is a very practical, helpful manifestation of these ideas in a way that the Jewish people can follow or to some degree that anyone can follow. Right, if you take, let's rewind a good few weeks at this point back to the Rambam, where the Rambam believes that that korbanot, that, sa- that sacrifices exist to redirect a certain urge that we have towards idol worship for a more positive, for a more or a more positive or a more proper service, for that matter. Well, well that would assume that that sacrifices are not necessarily an intrinsic necessity as much as they are a practical necessity for human beings who have those tendencies. And therefore, it's a manifestation of truth as opposed to the truth itself. The truth is 
there is something called proper service and something called improper service. And the truth is that desire for improper service can and should be directed towards proper service. The manifestation of that is human beings want to bring sacrifices to idols and therefore we were instructed to bring sacrifices to God. Where if we didn't have those urges, perhaps we wouldn't need that commandment. Now, that's, you know, I'm not trying to, to take things too far and ask questions, at least not in this podcast, ask questions about the, the necessity for sacrifices today or what will be the necessity in the third temple. Perhaps that's a different topic for a different time. But I just want to try to explain what I mean when I say Torah. Not necessarily the Torah as we know it in its form of manifestation, which is, an, uh, which is a form of objective truth as, it, as it's a reflection of the truth of, of human nature and what we need in order to serve God. But it is a manifestation of truth given what human beings need. It's not, it's not the truth boiled down to its elements before being applied to human beings and produced or, or, or processed into some sort of objective law. The Torah that I'm talking about is perhaps, you know, when, when the sages speak about Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov learning Torah, Yaakov learns Torah for 14 years in Yeshem Ve'ever, what does that mean? It definitely does not mean that he sat and studied the Chamishay Chumshay Torah, because then he would know, obviously, that Yosef was not killed, he was sold by his brothers. They're studying truth what we see as a manifestation of that truth. Now, that was a bit of a tangent, but I think it's necessary to understand what it means that the world was created for Torah. The Torah, the truth exists. This wasn't something that, that the Torah, it predates the world. Right? The Zohar says that God looked in the Torah and then created the world because the Torah was not, was not invented for the, sake of the world. The world was created for the sake of the Torah. The Torah exists. The Torah is truth. Things that are unchangeable, in a sense. They're absolute. And therefore, they, while they do exist, they exist only in theory and in potential. Now, as perfect as that form of existence is, it's a little bit shallow. It's a little bit hollow because what good is objective truth with no manifestations of that truth? What good is good with no, with, with no, without it reaching some sort of practicality? That's the, that is why the world was created, to give practical manifestation for Torah as opposed to its theoretical potential existence. The Torah exists in potential as an ultimate good, as, as an objective truth. But it, is, it, it makes the Torah greater to exist in a real sense rather than only in potential. And that's why the world was created, so that there can be a reality that can act out the Torah there can be a reality and people and an existence that the Torah can manifest in a very, very real sense. When people follow the laws of the Torah, live their lives in accordance with the truth of the Torah, the Torah is now no longer 
uniquely potential, rather it's real, it's practical, it's actual, which is a higher form of Torah. Is it is a real form of Torah, a form of Torah that finds a that finds existence in the real world. And this is very closely related to how Rav Kook understands the idea of learning Torah Lishma, right? Learning Torah for a proper reason. Rav Kook believes that the proper reason to learn Torah is because God wills that Torah be a prominent, influential, central force in the world. And you learn Torah not for anything that you get out of it, but simply to make the Torah a more real part of our world, a more influential part of our world, a greater factor in the world. That is why you learn Torah, to expand the Torah's influence on the world and to actualize the Torah's presence in the real world, as opposed to its presence in potential, in in its existence prior to the world's creation, a truth that was absolute but irrelevant in a sense because there was no manifestation of it. And if that were the case, then the practical instruction that comes from that sort of premise would be that the world was created in order to actualize the truth of the Torah and therefore our responsibility is the actualization of the truth of the Torah, that we have the power to take something as great as the Torah and make it even greater through transforming it from potential to action. And every adherence that you have to, to the Torah, you're expanding it and actualizing it, really making the Torah greater than its potential existence. So the world was created on behalf of the Torah, to make the Torah greater, to transform the Torah from something that is potential to something that is real. With that, we'll conclude the three-part section on why God created the world, or perhaps more accurately, for what reason God created the world, because the why may never be known and may be unable to be known. And the next thing I would like to explore in the up-and-coming podcasts is... What is Olam Haba? What is heaven and hell? What is the next world? And all the accompanying questions such as how you get there. Are there people who don't get there? How exactly are you barred from, from such a reality, such an existence? And what exactly do we mean when we say Olam Haba?